This episode is sponsored by our Patreon supporters, Zeb Porter, Julie Gray, Mary Jones, Jessica Smith, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Maria Carla Sanchez, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Lang, Valerie Jacobson, Heather McKinnon, Eric and Carolyn Shumway, Chantel Oliver, Katrina and Kristen, Tamzane Weir, Caitlin McTaggart, and Lindsay Cummings. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month and get access to ad-free episodes, early registration on our tours, and all kinds of other great gifts. Check it out at our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, and click donate. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. I am very excited, because today we are revisiting my all-time favorite place in the world. Oh, ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt. Oh, all right. We are headed way, way back, 3,500 years back. Okay. And I will tell you straight up front, I have wanted to do an episode on this woman for a long time, but I was worried that she was too well known. She's obviously very famous and everyone knows her. Yeah. Is what I kept saying. Okay. So. I think you and I both have this problem in that we are such enormous nerds. That we don't know what normal people know. <laughs> and we keep having these conversations where like, can't do her. Everyone knows her. And then the people around us go, yeah, no, actually, they don't. <laughs> they don't know her. Well, it can't be Cleopatra. She is. She I is will kibosh famous. if you're yes. trying to do Cleopatra. She's too big. It is not Cleopatra. Okay, well, then it must be hot, sep, hot. Hot chip suit. Hot chip suit. Yes. Hot chip. Hot chip suit. <laughs> yes, and that is exactly where we're starting. With Why hot... doesn't anyone know her name? Oh. <laughs> Why can't we pronounce her name? Why isn't she super famous? She is super famous. She's not. Okay. And I can prove it. Oh. But How? I will say my guest, Kara Cooney, ah. also has apparently a similar problem, which is not surprising, given her knowledge of the subject. Hatshepsut is this very interesting and special woman because she did it all right, and yet nobody can pronounce her name. The example I always give is, let's say, Olivia, you and I go to the nearest bus stop and go ask the person at the bus stop, whoever they are, do you know who Cleopatra is? And what do you think it's going to be, like 90%, 100%? I mean, everyone knows who Cleopatra is. And they'll be like, well, she slept with all these dudes and there were like Roman emperors involved and, and she died because of the snake bite. But if you then say, okay, what about Hatshepsut? And people, Hatch, what? You know, some people might know, I would put it like a 20%. That's probably generous. I actually did this. I went out literally to a bus stop. Okay. And polled a bunch of people. I would say I asked around 50 people these questions. Uh-huh. Can I ask you a question for a podcast? Yes. Do you know who Cleopatra is? Yes. Kind of. I think she had a love triangle with Julius (laughs) Caesar. Yeah? Anyone know anything else about Cleopatra? No. 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 Have you ever heard of Hot Shepsut? I don't remember. (laughs) Do you know who Cleopatra is? Yeah. She was Egyptian, I think. She was, like, super pretty. I don't remember anything else. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Hatshepsut? No. Have you ever heard of Cleopatra? I know that she was 
I'm pretty sure an Egyptian queen. I don't think she was a princess. Have you ever heard of Hatshepsut? No. Do you know who Cleopatra is? Yes. Yes. Mark Antony, Cleopatra, the woman who sent a thousand ships. Ah. No, no, that was Helen of Troy. Queen of Egypt. Egypt, yeah. yeah. That's right. Have you ever heard of Hatshepsut? Yes. That name sounds familiar, but I don't know who that is. She was also a queen of Egypt. Have you ever heard of Hatshepsut? No. Do you know who Cleopatra is? Queen of Egypt, I believe. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Hatshepsut? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Hatshepsut? Say that word again? Exactly. <laughs> Four people had heard of Hatshepsut, <laughs> two knew she was an Egyptian queen, and precisely one could tell me anything more about her than that. <laughs> and that person was a nine-year-old child. <laughs> ah! She is not too famous. Okay. <laughs> you are in Wild West America, it must be said. <laughs> not a scientific sample. As opposed to... Egypt, for example. Ah, well, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, and if I stop and think about it, like, I've heard of her, if, like, in name a female pharaoh, she's the one I'm going to name, but do I mm. really know her story? No. Does anybody really yeah, know her story? Yeah, people who know her yeah. just know, oh yeah, mm -hmm. the female pharaoh. Okay. So we're going to fix that today. Cool. But why? Why isn't she famous? Why don't people know her? She's amazing, and there aren't a massive number of women who were king of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Five or six that we know of. Although there are plenty of super powerful, ruler-in-all-but-name women who were regents, etc. So why do we know the ones we know? Why do we know Cleopatra mm -hmm. and not Hatshepsut? I have theories. So does Kara Cooney. Ooh. So we'll talk about him in a bit. But first, I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. As I have already mentioned, my guest today is the wonderful Kara Cooney, back again. Celebrity Egyptologist. I was able to hold it together a bit better this time. There is less overt fangirling during this interview. Still some fangirling, <laughs> but less. <laughs> I'm Kara Cooney. I'm chair of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures, and I also teach about ancient Egypt at UCLA. I've written two books that include Hatshepsut, one that's completely devoted her, called The Woman Who Would Be King. And then the other one is When Women Ruled the World, and she's a significant chapter in that book. Because in the book, When Women Ruled the World, I compare them all to each other. I compare their modus operandi, their political acumen, as can be seen from two to 5,000 years away. And I try to look at the different circumstances that led to their rise to power, their removal from power, whether a peaceful death or something more violent. And Hatshepsut comes out on top in every single category in those comparisons. So first of all, what do we know? As we talked about quite a bit on our previous episode about Tawashet, 
what we know about ancient Egypt is extremely limited. Yeah, it's only what the man very wants narrow us to lens. know. Yes, th this is only official communications. Mm -hmm. That's what we have left. Mm -hmm. This is not ancient Rome, where you have all the angry letters and all the angry mm -hmm. graffiti <laughs> written by every powerful person's enemies. You have only the official narrative to go on. In ancient Egypt, we are operating as if we are trying to understand U.S. history, and the only sources we have are official White House press releases. Yeah. What could we learn <laughs> yep. about U.S. history? A fair <laughs> amount, but it would yeah. definitely involve lots of reading between the lines and putting together context, and you certainly would right. hope nobody would just take it at face value. But that's mostly what people have done with ancient Egypt until very recently. But here's what mm. we know. Hatshepsut was the daughter of Thutmose I. He was a really powerful pharaoh, started the 18th dynasty, and he conquers a lot of the area around Egypt. His Egypt is larger than it has ever been before him. Hatshepsut is born around 1507 BCE. She is the daughter of the pharaoh and his principal wife. The following pharaoh, Tutmos II is her half-brother and her husband, because of <laughs> course. As we talked about in our episode on Tawasret, this choice to promote inbreeding is a very deliberate and a conscious choice these dynasties are making. They know what they're doing. They are not unaware mm -hmm. of the genetic consequences of this, but the benefits... But you gotta keep the power yeah, in the, the family. Yeah, the benefits of keeping yeah. the power consolidating everything into the very immediate family makes it really hard for other people to undermine your power. In this case, Tutmos II is sort of a lesser son. He's not really that important, and he's not really very well connected, whereas Hatshepsut is the eldest daughter, the most important daughter of the most important wife. So him marrying her makes his claim to the throne much more powerful. It gives him a lot more authority in that position. Sources talk about this, his strategic decision to marry Hatshepsut and ally all of these family lines. But is it his decision? I was just thinking Precisely. like they have the same dad, like it's the dad who's doing everything. And right? they're like 13. So yeah, they're not it's strategically the choosing anything. No. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, these things are being chosen for him, but mm -hmm. it is a good strategic choice. <laughs> <laughs> like my son makes a good strategic choice to take a shower every other day and surely is his choice alone. These decisions also made sense in the context of where we are here. We're just emerging from the 17th dynasty, which was extremely violent and under siege. Egypt is threatened on all sides, the Hyksos and the Nubians. There's massive dislike of foreigners mm -hmm. and lots of sort of nativist inward turning mm -hmm. action going on. Karakuni calls it a make Egypt great again campaign. <laughs> <laughs> this dynasty is also, weirdly, until you really think about it, full of lots of really powerful women. Lots of women are ruling, if not in name, they are 
installed at every level of the hierarchy and being very trusted to run things while the men are off fighting wars. Mm. Just like Karakuni wrote about in When, when Women, women Rule the, the World. world. Yeah. That, yes. Uh, in Egypt, at least, it's in times of chaos that women are allowed to have power. Yeah. Right? It's been right. enough chaos. They're like, okay. And especially in this situation, it, it might be a case of we hate everyone else so much that our women are at least better than anyone else's men, okay. and so yeah. they're the only option. The 18th dynasty here inherits that female power, but dispenses with some of that defensiveness. Dynasty 18 is a whole hell of a lot of female power. They are prosperous and powerful and not under threat, and so they come in with women in all of these very powerful positions, but these women are not regarded as, as threatening. Women in power is kind of normalized and acceptable and fine and not something to be freaked out by. Hatshepsut herself is installed in a position of pretty staggeringly huge power before puberty. <laughs> She is chosen as the god's wife of Amun, which is the most powerful priestess of the most powerful god in Egypt Ooh. at this point. So under 12 years old, she is one of the most influential people in the kingdom. Arguably the most influential role for a woman in Egypt in terms of mm -hmm. power, control, authority, independence. We are not totally sure what the god's wife of Amun actually did, <laughs> but that's all, of course, shrouded in secrecy and mystery. These are really important religious rituals that she is completely in charge of, and we have no idea what they are. But the position was clearly an extremely powerful, important, respected one, and she is religiously crucial for the kingdom. She is literally the one who makes sure that the god arises every morning, that the sun rises, that the gods are awake, and that the earth runs correctly. That's her job. Sounds hard. Yeah, especially for a 12-year-old. <laughs> that's an arguable point. Was it during the reign of her father, during the reign of her husband? One of the Thutmuzid kings, she becomes God's wife of Amun, the most important priestess position in all of Egypt, maybe at the age of 12, maybe the age of 10. We don't know. But she would have been sent away from the main capitals of Egypt, where all the action was, Memphis, Heliopolis, those places at the apex of the delta. And she went down to the Theban home region of her dynasty, a kind of backwater, if you like, but a religious power center. And probably left her family very young. Imagine leaving your family at 12 or 13 or 14, and you would get your entourage that goes with you. And you're learning as you go. You're growing into the position. In this position, she is also getting mentoring by generations of powerful women. Her mother, her grandmother, her aunts, all of the other powerful women of the royal household who have held this position or are adjacent to it. She's also heard the stories of these powerful women of the 
17th dynasty, they have set the stage for her to aspire higher. She is learning how to manage people and power and how the inner structures of this society work, how the court works. All of this is going to serve her extremely well in the future. She is also one of the only people who gets an instant audience with the pharaoh. A lot more contact with the king than with arguably almost any other child in the royal harem nursery because she's his chief priestess. Sons are going to come and go. They're going to die early. Who knows who's going to be the king next? If she's working as God's wife of Amun alongside her husband, Tutmos II, she's there having the one-on-one connection with the king and with that network of power, with his advisors, with his viziers, all of these things, more than, than many other people. And so this idea of do women rule differently? You know, Hatshepsut helps us to understand the answer to that question. But she also helps us to understand the constraints, the ties that bind every female ruler. If she was God's wife of Amun, Hatshepsut would have had to stare a guy down, you know, and say no at a certain point, say I'm doing it this way, or, or would have had to work in the temple and bring a lot of discipline to memorizing rituals, doing things in the right way, standing in the correct fashion. So it gave her a particular space of power, an ideological space, an economic space. She had her own palace, her own staff. She's in control of her own treasury. She is the boss of hundreds and hundreds of people and is effectively running sort of her own religious industry Mm -hmm. within the country. And then her father dies. No crown prince has been named. No successor has been chosen. This might be an extremely dangerous time for Hatshepsut. She is the god's wife of Amun, but she is no longer the pharaoh's daughter. She could easily be unseated if the half-brother chosen as pharaoh is not someone on her team, it might be a really stressful, dangerous time. Or it might be completely according to plan, because what becomes pretty clear pretty quickly here is that the machine has decided who it wants to rule. And who it wants to rule is Hatshepsut. Interesting. It doesn't so much matter which brother is chosen for her to marry, Just that there will be one, and that she will be installed as the royal wife. Fascinating. The god, obviously, chooses Thutmose II. It's made very clear, the gods chose him. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the gods chose him because he would be weak and ineffective and Hatshepsut could run the show. Ah, yes. That seems likely. Who is God's number one communicator and representative? Hatshepsut. Yes. I'm looking at her. She did it all. Well, she's like uh, 13, so. Oh. Seems unlikely. (laughs) It seems probably pretty likely that 
the machine yeah. thinks both of them are going to be easily manipulated oh. and controlled. And they've installed two puppets. I but see. But one puppet with a bit of experience and connection and ability to actually perform the role. Uh-huh. While still being a 13-year-old and they can run things from behind the scenes. Okay. So, she marries her half-brother and they rule together for a while. It's either three or nine or ten years. Okay. Or 18. All right. <laughs> if it was nine or ten years, he was a terrible pharaoh. Why? He left nothing. He left no temples. He left no fancy mortuary tomb. He left no okay. great accomplishments. If it was three years, that's more reasonable. And especially if he's, mm-hmm. you know, nine. Either way, pretty clearly, he is not really the king. And then he dies. And he leaves behind a bunch of toddlers. <laughs> In Egypt, they call them nestlings, which I love. The mm-hmm. pharaoh's young children are the nestlings. How could any of these two-year-olds be the king? I mean, a puppet is a puppet. Yes. Economically, politically, things are good. Egypt is stable, and a succession crisis here is not the kind of destabilizing terror that it is later for Tawasret when Sipta dies. Like, things are okay. And thus they, the courtiers, the priests who ran the temples and the money in the temples, the businessmen, the army men, they decided we want this girl to rule Egypt instead of bringing in a man. They're not trying to negotiate like a coup that will turn things in their favor. Things are in their favor. They just want things to stay the same, right? And keeping things the same is much easier than trying to turn everything upside down. All they have to do is keep the machine running on the track and not let somebody derail it. An oracle was set up to determine who would be the next king. Thomas III tells us this in his annals. And we are told that all of the princelings are brought together into the temple. And you can imagine a bunch of two-year-olds like hanging out with their mothers or their nannies. And they bring the oracle in, in the bark, and the priests are holding it aloft on their arms and they carry it around, we are told, and they choose one of these boys. How that oracle actually happened, do they all get drunk and decide, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna listen to the gods. Or do they all get together and say, we need this boy? Because if we pick this boy whose family is nothing and all a bunch of farm herder people, we've got it. And that's probably what they did. They probably got together and were like, okay, we're going to pick this uninfluential family's child and the oracle will do it. We're going to shunt the responsibility onto this divinity. And then we can have everything we want. We keep our positions, we keep our influence, we keep our money. They put the two-year-old on the throne. That must have been an interesting set of coronations. Like, who gets to see that? And does he, like, toddle away? You know, how, how is this working? Many unanswered questions. But it's so interesting to see this patriarchal system decide that Hatshepsut is their best bet to keep their power going to the next generation. The new pharaoh, Tutmose III, is not Hatshepsut's son. This is the son of a lesser, very unimportant, very unconnected wife. Okay, that's weird. Hatshepsut 
only has a daughter oh. named Neferore. Okay. But Hatshepsut is named regent. Now, according to protocol, according to tradition, according to all the rules, the regent should be his mother. Oh. But it's not. Interesting. It's his aunt slash stepmother, the former queen. Now, the standard story that you get in most of these standard histories, growing up as an Egypt groupie, this is the first evidence of Hatshepsut's power-mad, overstepping, wildly ambitious <laughs> ascent to the throne. Mm. She is going to take power at all costs. Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, a few issues here. This is a teenage girl. Yeah. The oldest she can be is 22. She does not name herself regent. Plus she's... She can hot. And she's the godwife of... She's, she's the, the godwife of Amun. Yeah. That. She's a big deal. And that's where you go, Ah, okay. This is not Hatshepsut, as the history books used to tell us, stealing power from her nephew. This is a bunch of dudes who want to keep their jobs, who want to keep their influence, who want to keep everything they have, who are looking at the situation and going, if we open this up, we're going to be dealing with a big cluster F of pain. This army general is going to come in, this high priest, this cousin of Thomas I is going to come in. We're going to have all of these competing men, some with armies, some without. We're going to all lose our jobs, first of all. And this is going to be a huge problem. So let's just not do that. It's clearly not just about picking a gullible puppet. They don't choose the king's mom, who is a nobody. She's unconnected, inexperienced. She would be a gullible puppet, very easy to control. They don't choose her. They choose Hatshepsut, with years of training already and some demonstrated ability mm -hmm. to do the job. This is about not disrupting the state. She is competent enough to trust with stuff, while young enough that they can probably still control her. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing that many people when they're reading history or historians themselves, they look at people in space and time as a monolithic mind, a mind that's always making the same decisions at 16 that they did at 30. But she would have been ruled by her advisors much more strongly at the age of 16, 17, 18, if she did come into power that young. Much more than when she was older, when she had been through some fires, had been burned a couple of times. Maybe at the beginning, she's just trying to survive. She's just trying to learn as much as she can. She's trying to drink from the fire hose. And once she gets more knowledge and the game slows down for her, as they say, she's going to be able to come at this political situation with more nuance and more aggressiveness. Of course, she was probably fairly puppety right. at the beginning. She's a teenager or early 20s. She has to learn to navigate the system she's been installed in, but she's clearly competent. She's clearly intelligent. She shows that by her successful reign and the fact that she's not tossed out on her ear the moment the young pharaoh is of age or the moment she displays ambition herself. 
she's regent, which is an unnamed, unmarked, unformalized title that's not ever given, but she's ruling. And we're told in other texts that everyone's doing what she says. She's ruling for this toddler king who is getting older and older. So my point is that you have to look at the entire reign of the woman to be able to understand how female power works because female power within a patriarchal society is still and always was constrained. Women had to rule differently. Women still have to rule differently. We cannot just go out there and do the things the guys do, but not just because it's not expected, but because we don't have the resources that the guys have. She's at a strategic disadvantage here as a woman in more ways than just ideologically. Hatshepsut couldn't raise an army in the same way that her nephew Tutmos III could. Hatshepsut has no access to military power. Not because she's the regent, but because military power does not go with pharaohness or regentness. Oh. There isn't an Egyptian army. There are private armies. And your ability to raise an army to work your will on the world is dependent on your connections to other powerful military leaders. She has less access to economic power because of me. Because what is ancient war but to make money, right? You go smash and grab, bring some stuff back. You've got a whole lot of loot. You reward your guys. It's This is the way it works, right? It still arguably works this way. She can't raise an army as the god's wife of Amun. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't have the muscle to push people around. She has to win people over because she cannot conquer them. Ah. Karakuni says... Hatshepsut recognized that it was all about human resources. <laughs> it doesn't matter what else is going on. It's all about the people. And she is really good, even in the tiny little breadcrumbs that we can get, at figuring out how to play these elites in her favor, how to play them against each other, how to maintain power through strategic and interpersonal means instead of brute force. She promotes their interests, making sure they're on the same team. And the ones she can't control, she installs them in vulnerable political positions, making sure they have to spend a lot of their time defending themselves against other rivals, letting the elites do the work of tearing each other down so she doesn't have to. I just keep thinking about how all of this sounds so familiar. And <laughs> I mean, all of this political negotiation and mm-hmm. puppetry. You want them smart, but not too smart. And enemies mm-hmm. and, and the whole thing. The whole thing is just some things never change. Yep. Amazingly, <laughs> amazingly consistent. <laughs> yep. The things that women in power have to deal with. She's also a master at cloaking her motives in the veil of religious ideology. What she wants is only what the gods want. Oh, yeah. She is simply doing the will of the gods. She is merely fulfilling her duty. Mm-hmm. What if she really believed it? I like that. And what idea. if all of this is just real piety? What if yeah. instead of this devious woman seeking for power, what if she's telling the truth? Mm-hmm. 
And she might have been serious and she might have meant it, right? We tend to kind of sneer backwards sure. at religious belief and see it just as a way to manipulate people. But there are sure. people in any time period who really sincerely believe things. Yeah. God chose me, she says. And they all say this, but she very explicitly says, not only did the gods choose me, Amun actually impregnated my mother and announced this will be the female pharaoh. First, I pegged her as a schemer, but now I think she's just uh, authentically a believer. Based on my well-informed <laughs> expertise. <Yeah>. And that's... <laughs> exactly the same amount of information that any of us have because we have no information. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you gave me a job when I was 13 and you told me that the sun god impregnated my mother and that I was choking, you know, if you told me all that and I was 13, I'd be I'd believe it. I'd yeah. be like, I'm gonna and do you, my very best. Yeah, you, you've been trained your whole life. Yeah. Literally, as the representative of the god, For sure, to f keep Egypt and the world running, mm -hmm. you're going to take that pretty seriously. She says over and over in reliefs, my father told me to be the king. He told the elites that he wanted me to be the king. He told me to take over and I am only doing what an obedient daughter should do, what an obedient subject of the king should do hmm. for the sake of the kingdom. Yeah. Whether it was sincere or not, it seems to have worked. She is showing her piety, her devotion to the dynasty, to her dead husband. She is erecting statues to her dead husband, reminding everyone why she is there. She is not just the king's wife. Mm-hmm. She is the king's sister. She is the king's daughter. She's justifying herself and portraying herself so selflessly, keeping her husband's son safe. She is protecting him, even though it's not her own child. Flipping that, that it's yeah. not your child. What are you doing here? Saying, oh, that's all the more reason why what I'm doing should be respected and important. Yeah. But... This public-facing strategy can only work for so long. Mm. She is still just a regent and an uneasy choice. The god's wife title she is supposed to give up to a direct relative of the new king. Oh. Probably his mother should have it. She is the most likely and obvious candidate. It seems pretty clear Hatshepsut wants to keep it for her own daughter, but her daughter is three. Oh. So Hatshepsut just keeps the title herself, and everyone lets her do it. Again, we see that consensus of the machine mm -hmm. behind the scenes, the agreement that she is the one who should be in charge. They do not want to give more power to the actual king hmm. and his family. They want her to stay the consolidation of that power. But everyone knows she's going to need some real justification for this pretty soon. From the clues we have, the guesses we can make seem like she is very early on establishing the path for her to take the kingship officially. 
she shows herself in reliefs interacting with the gods personally in a way that no god's wife of Amun or regent has ever done this before. She's elevating herself to the status of a pharaoh in personal touch with the gods well before she is naming herself pharaoh anywhere. But it shows this is already in everyone's mind. Nobody's stopping her from doing this. Everyone seems to be on board. When she finally assumes the titles of the king, she's gotten people used to it. It's very interesting to see again that they, whoever they are, we've got the they that support Hatshepsut, that's her entourage, where their positions are beholden to her power. And then a new they <laughs> come in and their positions are connected to competitors. And we don't know who these people are. We just know that all of a sudden Hatshepsut becomes king. And how weird. Because there's a king on the throne already. He's nine years old, at least. You know, a nine-year-old is not a great age to be a king, but he's made it through the age of five. And for anybody who studies the pre-modern world knows that you, you're past the most dangerous part, right? You might live till 50. If you get to nine, you're doing okay. So you got a nine-year-old on the throne and all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, she's going to be king. And I need to say again, everyone is listening to this and I know all the women are nodding their heads, but no woman goes into a court and says, I get to be king now, give it to me. That's such bullshit, I don't know what to say. This is a patriarchal society. They have everything worked out such that it benefits them. And no woman's going to be able to come in there and take that. This woman took this because there was the communal acceptance, a communal agreement that she was the best choice for them. And so they work with her for seven years, arguably. Start a bar fight amongst Egyptologists because it's in year seven of the III's reign that she does this. And by year seven, maybe the family of the III had gotten connected within the court to some operators who were like, wait, why are you being abused in this way? You should be a decision maker. You should be doing this or that. And they're like, yeah, you're right. I should be. And why is this woman, this chick, ruling all of us? This is ridiculous. This is horrible. And they're like, yeah. And so then the entourage of Hatshepsut, with Hatshepsut's agreement, we must assume she's not forced to do this, are like, we got to make sure that your power stays so that our power stays. She makes an announcement at this coronation that the Oracle of Amun chose her personally. He put the crown on her head with his own hands and said, Amun has chosen you to be king. Okay. And she's not, to be clear, the god is not unchoosing the the Third is not gone. Yeah. He is still also the pharaoh. They are co-pharaohs. Okay. Though the demotion for him is very clear mm -hmm. in that sickest of all burns grammar <laughs> his name is slightly changed when she is made co-king no longer is his name the manifestation of the sun god endures in him okay 
but merely the manifestation of the spirit of the sun god endures in him. Oh, fascinating. That, I mean, you're not a god anymore because she is the god. Ah. In practice, it's pretty clear she's the boss. He's along for the ride. And in a move that reminds me of Wu Zhao, brilliant female emperor of China, she knows the power of a party. Ah. She throws a massive celebration at her coronation. Huge, huge new statues. These incredible obelisks, 10 stories tall, proclaiming her the king, are installed. Wow. Now, she had ordered these years earlier when they appear as she is made king. This is miraculous, right? These are suddenly there. Okay. And... They are better than anything anyone has made in Egypt for a long time. This is a return to the glory days Mm. of Egyptian engineering. She is harking back to this, we are making Egypt great again, with me. (laughs) Look at this incredible stuff we're doing. Yeah. And she is setting herself up, not just as chosen by God, but to that earlier time of the engineering marvels when the Pharaoh is God. She is not just chosen by God. She is implying, I am God. Cool. She does this several times. She throws a jubilee, which she is not supposed to do until she has reigned for 30 years. She does it anyway. Very cleverly. It is a jubilee of her family's years of kingship. She's just part of this chain. It's been 30 years and this also highlights her status as the real royal of these two. She is much more closely linked and fancier than Tutmos III. Yeah. There are no visible signs of him rebelling, of him frustrated by this. They rule together with her clearly in the driver's seat for a long time. Maybe he believes too. Wouldn't that be cool if it's just all peaceful believers just going, it could yep. Be. This is how it's meant to be. But there are some signs of wavering power Mm. visible when you start looking. Hatshepsut is creating massive numbers of new jobs for non-royal elites. Oh. She is buying the loyalty of powerful but not royal people. There you go. She is making sure they have incomes, they have power, they have influence. And... You can see that these things have happened because during the reign of Hatshepsut, the spending power of your normal Theban elite or Heliopolitan elite or Memphite elite grows by leaps and bounds. They have these fabulous tombs. They have statues made of themselves. They've got painted decoration. They've got really nice coffins. They have things they did not have in the reign before. So they are self-dealing to be sure And they're choosing the king that they want so that the game has to continue. And so as Kara Cooney points out, she is bit by bit losing her influence and power over the long haul Hmm. by trying to keep it now, by giving up more and more power, more and more money to the people around her supporting her. She is undermining her own position. That's interesting. But it works for now. Yeah. Again, just sounds very much like the modern 
era. Mm -hmm. She gave away more money and treasure to the elites around her than any other pharaoh in the 18th dynasty. To be fair, there was a lot more to give. They're wildly prosperous. Okay. But this does look a bit like a pyramid scheme in reverse. (laughs) She sends off explorers to far off exotic lands like the land of Punt. Really? To keep everybody. That's cool. Excited about the state of things. Yeah. Her team comes back bearing incredible new trade goods like frankincense and myrrh and hardwood mahogany. Brilliant. Incredible, beautiful flowers and fruits that no one has ever seen before. Where's the land of Punt? The land of Punt is probably modern day Ethiopia and Djibouti along the coasts of those countries. Cool. But Tiltmas III, her co-king, her nephew, her dead husband brother's son, he's now getting more and more powerful. He's in his 20s. You know, he's doing really well. It's around this point that Hatshepsut starts portraying herself as very androgynous, very different than before. She had never pretended to be a male pharaoh. Suddenly, it is becoming more male. The words, the grammar is still feminine, but the images look like a strong, powerful, masculine pharaoh. Interesting. I don't think it's a a coincidence that this happens just as the boy pharaoh is no longer a boy pharaoh, but a man pharaoh. Mm. And she is an unthinkably old lady pushing 40. And when she is depicting herself, suddenly... It is a very masculine, big biceps, strong jaw, man's man with her name. Interesting. Maybe she's trying to bridge that gap between like aging female and virile young man. Make herself strong and powerful. Nobody is ever old in Egyptian art. Yeah. They want everyone to be of this beautiful, constantly readable I might even say age for male or female. Everyone is ever young, but ever adult. Everyone is always just in their prime. Hot and fit. Yeah. Forever. But this is an odd shift. But it might be when she tries to ensure the succession of power to her daughter, Nefere, that things start to fall apart for her. As far as we know, she only had one child, her daughter with most the second. Hmm. She certainly would not have publicized it if she had had another child that destabilized the narrative, so who's to say? This very careful balance that she has struck between allowing terrifying female ambition to freak out the men in charge while still ensuring that her chosen successors continue. Maybe they push too hard. She puts her daughter into that priestess position. She tries to use that priestess position to gain her power in the same way that she had it gained for her. And it backfires because the conditions that demanded Hatshepsut come into power are no longer there. And one would wonder why Hatshepsut couldn't necessarily see that. Maybe she's like you or me, just trying to have power in the world and not understanding why a woman can't have power like anybody else. Don't you get frustrated and throw your hands up and go, wait, why? You know, this doesn't make sense. And Hatshepsut probably was like, really? And realized that 
her feminist exuberance had a stopping point. It had a glass ceiling. It was a hard stop. And her daughter suffered, it seems, in that pushback. Because it is quite possible that Neferay's names and thus her reputation and maybe even her very body were destroyed during Hatshepsut's reign. So that's that's really sad. <laughs> it's really tragic, right? It's this tragic end result of Hatshepsut trying to maintain what she had with her entourage, with her people and her way and her assets. And when Hatshepsut dies, and no, I don't know that it was a natural death. There's nothing to suggest that it was an unnatural death, but I don't absolutely know it. At this moment, he decides to show himself as pious, dutiful. It makes perfect sense for him politically. He wants the ideological power that Hatshepsut had as well. He wants to win those hearts and minds. So whatever temple she had started in Karnak or Heliopolis or Memphis, arguably too, he finishes those structures. He puts his name there and says, I want to finish this. He builds her a tomb in the Valley of the Kings, one of the first. Well, she probably started it, but he puts her in there. He installs her. The dead do not bury themselves. She's buried in state with respect. So it seems, okay, you know, she ruled. She's a placeholder from one man to another, but she ruled. That's okay. We can put it in our sixth grade history books and, and give it to the girls and say, look, you can rule too. Your brain is able to do it. You won't be able to continue on, but you can do it. But then, of course, our story gets worse. 20 years later, 25, 22, whatever, some couple of decades later, he decides this woman serves me no more. And he sends out artisans bearing chisels to remove her names and her figures as king everywhere that they can find. Them. Dismantles her red chapel at Karnak. It's in a big pile, so he's like, fine, just chisel out the ones you can see. And they chisel out the ones you can see. He wants to keep her temples because these are really nice places that she's built in really important spaces. So he does a light erase. He's like, just erase her lightly and we will cover it with plaster and I will claim all that she has done. So all of her success goes to her father or, or her husband. He's removing her slowly from her own stuff and replacing her with the men in the line. Harder to build infrastructure, easy to rename it in honor of yes. whatever you want. And say, ah, oh, yes, and look at this wonderful economy we have. I totally did that. <laughs> yeah. They didn't go after her tomb. There's nothing that suggests that they actually tried to remove her soul or destroy her body. No evidence like that. Her images when she's married to Tumas II or when she's serving as God's wife of Amun, they leave. Those remain. So this isn't, we must remove her from the face of the earth. We must only remove her in people's eyes as king. That's what was wrong and bad. Hatshepsut rules her over 22 years. She left Egypt better than she found it. She creates a prosperous state. She arguably was not taken out of power through any sort of violent means. She's there as the one who did it best. She just does a good job. She does a good job. <laughs> She doesn't get murdered or murder anyone. She does, well, probably, but not personally. Mm -hmm. She didn't have any massive scandal. Mm. She was just a plain, good old solid pharaoh just who happened to be a woman. Doing the will of the gods. That's funny. That reminds me of the episode, The Good Wife, about like you obey all the rules and yeah. you do a good job. Where does that yep. leave you in the end? 
well-behaved women. Mm-hmm. And here's the important part. The more awesome you are, the more all your awesomeness can be reassigned to someone else because awesomeness is fungible. Fungible is a big word. It just means it's exchangeable. It just means that you can take that awesomeness and you can transfer it to the guy who ruled after you. Whereas failure, <laughs> no one wants to take credit for that. So failure is very individualized. We remember to whom the failure belongs and you just reassign awesomeness to somebody else. And all the women are nodding because, you know, any great idea they had and they brought into their boss, I have this great idea. And then all of a sudden it's in the boardroom and it's your boss's idea. And you're like, how did that happen? I'm like, cause it's a great idea. It's a successful idea. And you're not gonna be able to own success in the way that you can own failure. We even have a word for it appropriation <laughs> the tendency of some men to claim the ideas or work of women and make it their own. <laughs> so she doesn't even get to have the cultural memory. Shakespeare doesn't write a play about her. We don't have Elizabeth Taylor play her. We still haven't had a Hatshepsut movie. But how many damn Cleopatra things we have going on? It's so annoying. We just want to see the woman fail. And that's why women rulers in particular are seen as cautionary tales, as something that we need to be afraid of. We want to see her die a horrible death, and we want to be a part of ritually killing her because she shouldn't have been so presumptuous as to rise so high. And so women find themselves in these very awkward positions where the better they do, the more forgotten they are. That's why you have a whole podcast about women who are forgotten because if they're badass and they do it all right and they just kill it, then it's very easy to say, oh, no, I did that. We don't remember women like Hatshepsut. If only she drove Egypt into the ground. If only she yeah. had wrecked it. Too bad. <laughs> In the decades after Hatshepsut's death, Tutmos III really shifts Egypt hard away from female power. The women are removed from the halls of power. <laughs> Patriarchy is back, baby. To think that we're anywhere near a post-patriarchal society is ridiculous. But I think we're at the beginnings of a post-patriarchal revolution. If we've gone through an agricultural revolution, and then we went through an industrial revolution, and we went through a gender or sexual revolution, which we have not completed by any stretch of the imagination. If you look at who is in control in government, finance, ideology, religion, or military systems. What I think we all agree, if you ask somebody from the hard right and somebody from the hard left or somebody in the middle, I think everyone agrees that we're on the precipice of something, something big. We agree on that. We have very different ideas of what should be done about it, but we all know that something is coming. And what I think is coming is a post-patriarchal revolution in which we decide that we are not going to commodify the female anymore. Women's power is a part of all of this because the more women are included into power systems and the more fragile that patriarchal system or ego, like as a collective gets, the more women decide not to even participate in that system, the more we see the disparities of power before us, 
And the more we need to look back at women like Hatshepsut and say, she was there ruling in the midst of a patriarchal system, doing it really well. She did it all right. I say, let's bring Hatshepsut back. Let's teach everyone to pronounce her to name. Hatshepsut. <laughs> I just mispronounced. Wow. Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. There you go. Say it with me now, everybody. Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. She's back. Huge thanks to Kara Cooney. On our website at whatshernamepodcast.com, you can find links to her books, The Woman Who Would Be King, When Women Ruled the World, as well as her new book, The Good Kings. You can also find photos, resources, links, and more. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. We're especially grateful for the music in this episode, which was provided by Michael Levy and Remen Soccer, as well as additional music by Kinsas Moriera and Kevin McLeod. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you use. It really helps new listeners find us. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. Our interns are Kira Maxwell and Katie Boucher. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.